Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that I have found that I can do is just to listen, to be an ear. And we may not understand the magnitude of what it means to somebody when we listen to their feelings. And when you're not listening just to speak or to share your own story, but you're really listening to understand and to empathize. And that's one of the biggest things that I've done is how can I be a better listener to my fellow birth moms? And how can I amplify their voices? Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. After placing her newborn son for adoption in 2013, Hope O. Baker struggled with depression, addiction, and overcoming the stigma that surrounds birth mothers. In her first book, Finding Hope, A Birth Mother's Journey into the Light, she shares the story of a successful open adoption. Hope, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. I'm excited to be here. Why don't you start by telling us your story? Yes. Well, there's lots of stories here. (laughs) Um, My birth mother's story, for those who don't know what a birth mother is, the simplest term is I was pregnant when I was in college. I had an unplanned pregnancy and I had decided that I wasn't ready to be a mom. I placed my newborn son for adoption, making me thus a birth mother. Here we are. One of the main reasons, you know, I think why I'm here, right, is I wrote a book and about that journey and just the trials and tribulations that women, not just in America, but all over the globe go through. Much like with any sometimes controversial topic, it's not talked about right? It's not talked about enough. There's like this taboo that surrounds birth mothers where a lot of times we live in shame and we live in the shadows. A lot of times we don't even talk about our story. You know, people don't even know even your family. And sometimes in some cases, your spouses, your partners, they don't even know that you, you're a birth mom. And that is changing. The landscape is changing. Going through those first couple of years after I placed my son, it was scary. Like the life I lived and the feelings I had were scary. And I felt alone all the time. And so I wrote a book and I started using my voice and the voice that was always there, but I felt ashamed to actually speak it. I shared my story and Here we are today. Listening to your story and all the things that you have to tell us, I'm so excited because number one, I really didn't think about that. Like how many people do I know that may have adopted a child? Anybody who's had a baby just did an interview with a lady on, well, it used to be called postpartum depression. They call it perinatal now because it's through the whole pregnancy, but it's like, you don't even get that. You don't even get that, oh, we're having a baby in a shower. You're trying to figure out how to get to tomorrow. Absolutely. I mean, your pregnancy is not celebrated. It's interesting because on just the regard of postpartum, and what did they call it now? Perinatal? Yeah. So that makes sense. But when you think about birth moms, I was never, ever evaluated for let's call it postpartum because I'm not necessarily saying before, but after birth. I was never evaluated for depression. I was never evaluated for anything. And you think about all the circumstances that surrounds placing a child, go to your six week checkup and you don't have a baby. So it's a little different. The process of, you know, getting the support you need is it's not there because in adoption, you place your child, you did what you came to do. 
most agencies and lawyers, once you place the kid, the child, they're like, okay, see you later. And you're left here trying to figure out, oh my gosh, like, what do I do? Like, how, how do I go on? How do I open my eyes in the morning and live a fulfilling life? after making that decision. And I think that sometimes I, people say this to me all the time. Oh, well, you didn't, have, you don't have to change diapers. And I'm like, goodness, like, yeah, it's, a, it's this crazy thing that people say, like, and I don't even think they mean harm by it, but they say things like that. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like you, you can't even begin to understand the magnitude of the feeling of knowing that first off, at least for me, I made this conscious choice. Like my son does not live with me. I do not parent him because in my eyes, I wasn't good enough. Now that itself is something that years of therapy you have to work through, you know? So it's, it's this, it's this tricky thing. And I think birth mothers are left they're left in the dust to try to pick up the shambles of their life after placement. And there's just no, there's not a lot of resources. I mean, since placement and after I wrote my book, I mean, resources, like people started coming to me and I'm like, whoa, you know, support groups are asking me to speak. And I'm like, I've never been to a support group. <laughs> like, They didn't have those where I was living when I placed. So I don't, what do you mean you want me to speak at it? I've never even been to one. Like, let me go to a couple first to see what's going on. So it's just, it's a crazy world. And, you know, back to your point about adoption in general, I gave a speech one time and I said, how many of you in this room, you know, either know someone who adopted, you've adopted, you're adopted, you know, you know, a birth mother, you're a birth mother. So many hands go up. I mean, almost all hands. Like when you ask that question, everybody knows somebody who's been in the adoption world in some frame. So for us not to be talking about the birth mother side, we, I mean, we have to, there's lots of us out there. And I thought about this. If you were to go in and have a baby and maybe lose it, maybe the baby didn't make it, there would be all this support for you, but yet you're walking away without a baby. And I, I feel really emotional just looking at you and talking to you because it was a beautiful thing you did. I have so many friends that have not been able to have children. It's not very easy to adopt in this day and age because people aren't adopting. They're aborting. That's not a judgment. It's, it's just a fact. So I really want to talk about what's most important to you. Yeah, that's great biggest thing for me, and it goes back to everything I've said, I just don't think that there are enough platforms for birth moms. I know that there are birth moms out there speaking. If you go to the online Instagram community and you go through the hashtags or you go on even Facebook, there's so many different groups, but their voices aren't being amplified. So within the birth mother community, there's a lot of us who are talking with each other and helping support each other. If you don't know how to find those groups, I mean, you, you don't really know where to turn. When you look at adoption and adoption from foster care or infant domestic adoption, like my son was adopted, you have to have all sides, what we call the triad, right? The triangle, the adoptee, the adopted parent, and the birth mom. You have to have all sides elevated, their voices elevated, because that's how we fix challenges. You can't solve a problem for a group of people without including each person, you know, represented in that group. And I think for so long, adoptive parents have been really at the center. Typically, if you follow money, you can see who has the influence. And it's not that adoptive parents are bad, but it's that they are the ones who carry all the power. 
they carry all the influence because they're the ones who are paying for the adoption. They're the ones who pay the agencies, the lawyers, et cetera. That point is so important to me that we lift all voices up and that not just we don't just have adopted parents who are speaking at, at different conferences and on TED Talks and all these different things. We have birth moms and we have adoptees. And when you do that, I think that we can help change laws. We can help change post-placement care. Like, what does that look like? There should be laws around that. Something that people don't think about with adoption is trafficking. There are women who are sent from state to state to give birth because the adoption laws are more relaxed in that state. I mean, that's wrong. It's trafficking. But yet it happens every day. I mean, it literally happens every day. There's a huge case with Paul Peterson. He was just found guilty in, I think, Utah and a couple other states for trafficking women in from out of country to place children for adoption, like paying for them to come here, housing them, placing their kids for adoption and sending them back. I mean, this is what's happening. And you're looking at me with wide eyes because people don't know this is happening. They think they hear adoption and they think how lucky that that child gets great parents who love them because their birth parents or first parents were able to get them, give them the life they deserve. That's the image that most of society sees but they don't see all the ins and outs that really come with adoption. And a lot of times people will say, are you anti-adoption? I'm not. I love my son's mom. I have an open adoption. I love her. She is the most wonderful mom. Watching them interact together is one of my favorite things. You know, they just have such a great bond, but I am anti a lot of the practices in adoption. I'm, I'm anti a lot of the the lax laws and the lack of support post-placement and lack of education. I'm, I'm definitely anti all of that. So many questions. And like you say, I am wide-eyed and I work with homeless. I understand trafficking. That has never occurred to me what you just said. You said something about laws. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I think the big things are the post-placement support. If you're going to be an adoption agency in any state and you're going to receive money for a placement, there should be a dollar amount that's allocated for that birth mother to get counseling sessions or group therapy or support groups, et cetera. I mean, adoption is not cheap, right? It's not cheap. It's so expensive. And when you look at where every single dollar goes, I mean, how much of that is going in to support the woman who place their child into your family. I think that there needs to be more post-placement care. Like I said, I mean, I was never evaluated for depression or even when I started to go to therapy, I was going to a non-adoption specialist therapy and placing my son was like barely brought up. Like, this is such a struggle. And they're like, well, let's go back to your childhood. And you know what I mean? Which you should do. You should always go back to your childhood. There's always trauma there. But it wasn't even looked at by that therapist as an important trigger point that could be causing the alcoholism, that could be causing the drug abuse. Like it wasn't looked at, even though this was this traumatic moment in my life, because I just don't think there's enough support systems or education in place. I mean, I think about before I placed and the education was just, it's not there. Like the education on options, et cetera, it's just not there. So I just, those are the two things I think are so important. It's just more widespread education in post-placement care. Since you've been doing this, have you noticed new, you said people are coming to you are you finding now that more resources are starting to pop up as people are getting aware? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think COVID was obviously and is obviously terrible. We've lost a lot of lives. That is obviously primary number one. The economy, there are so many things that COVID impacted for every single person in this world. 
every single person, which I think is a crazy experience, right? Like even just the thought of that. But one of the positive things that COVID brought was it brought support groups that are typically done in person. It brought them online. It brought them on Zoom. So now all of a sudden you have this group and I'm getting goosebumps sitting here. You have this group of women who maybe could not go to a support group because it was too far away. You have women who have never shared their birth mother story ever. First support group I was ever on. And I get so emotional thinking about this because it's just, it's an emotional thing. She was in her seventies and she placed a child when she was 17, 17 or 18. She had never shared with another person until that support group that she was a birth mom and that she has a child out there. And the magnitude of hearing those stories and hearing, you know, that woman has spent decades and decades holding this inside because she felt so shameful. And if pre-COVID, if those support groups weren't online, she didn't feel safe and comfortable going in person. So would she have had a resource or an outlet? I think that that's the big thing is when COVID hit, it allowed for all of these support systems to be remote, to be online. People were looking more to Instagram for for support because they couldn't get their regular face-to-face contact. And that's been such a beautiful thing. And I got involved with an organization called On Your Feet. And I sit on the board now and I, you know, help with different events and different outreaches and, and mentor programs and mentee programs. And their whole mission is to support birth moms. When I first met them, I'm like, this is a great organization. Why didn't I know about this seven years ago? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, where was this seven years ago? They were there, but it's just, it's hard to find resources, right? Mm-hmm. They're just not, it's not like they're advertised very well right? So it's hard to find those resources. I love how you started this interview. You said, what is a birth mom? And that maybe somebody who has given up a child isn't necessarily even thinking of themselves. This makes me really sad thinking of themselves as a mom. So maybe if they're looking for support, they don't even know how, because they're maybe not claiming, well, I am a birth mom. No, absolutely. There's books like The Girls Who Went Away and other books that are written in their stories about women who placed 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And their stories are heartbreaking. They have lived in shame their entire life. And back in those days, you know, you were sent away, you were sent to a maternity home and you had your baby, you came back and you never talked about it again. And that was standard practice. I'm glad that that's not practice today, <laughs> right? You know, closed adoptions, although they still exist for domestic adoptions, openness is encouraged. And, and I think that's beautiful. But when you, you know, and anybody who wants to learn anything about adoption, I mean, the girls who went away, it's, it's an incredible book. American Baby is another one that what tells a story about a woman who placed her son and, and she never stopped looking for him. They're tragic stories. When I was reading American Baby, I mean, I would, I, I couldn't control it. I would scream, physically wow. scream. And I'm a pretty calm person. I don't, my, my boyfriend and the people around me would say, I don't yell because I don't. And I, I physically screamed out loud in certain parts because I, I just felt such a sadness for this woman and for her child that he never knew either. Growing up, it's just, it's such a sad thing. And I think that's a big line that I wrote in my book is birth mother is not a dirty word, right? It's not. I don't have to be ashamed of who I am for that decision that I made. I still struggle with it. I still feel sadness. I still feel pain, but I don't have to be ashamed of myself anymore. And I hope that 
birth moms who, like you said, do they even consider themselves moms? I mean, it's hard, it's hard to know, but I hope that if any of them are listening, they know that they're not alone. There are millions of us in America. Remind me the name of your book. It's called Finding Hope, A Birth Mother's Journey into Light. And where can we get this book? You can get the book on Amazon. You can get it on Barnes Noble, Target, Walmart.com. We are talking with Hope Baker, the author of that book, talking about being a birth mom. Two things, well, they all stood out to me. <laughs> Two, one is open adoption. If you could talk a little bit about that after that, maybe the decision to have a child after adoption. These are huge for somebody that's been through that. Tackling the first question, so open adoption. So my adoption is open. So I get to see my son two to three times a year. One year I did see him four times. We FaceTime now, he's eight. So sometimes we play Minecraft on FaceTime. His mom got me a little love box. They both did for my birthday and we can send messages back and forth. And I, the first message I got from him that I could tell what he actually wrote, I broke down crying. It was one of the highlights of my life just to get a message from him. But in open adoption, there's different forms, right? So my adoption, some would say is very open. I still get to see him. I'm a part of his life and I, I get pictures and communicate. But there are semi-open adoptions where you know who the adoptive parents are, you know who the birth parents are, but there's not a lot of contact. Maybe it's a letter a year, pictures, but there's no visitation, anything like that. So there's a lot of different forms. And here's the thing too, is I didn't necessarily know that pre-placement. So I didn't necessarily understand the difference between closed, open, semi-open, because when I first went into adoption, I thought, well, I want a closed adoption because I don't, it'll be too painful to know, like to see him or to be around him. So I wanted him to be far away. And I didn't realize that closed meant I wouldn't even know who his parents were. I wouldn't even know his name. Like I didn't realize that. So I think the world at least in America, is moving towards more open adoptions because what they found is it's healthier for the child. Children who are adopted, who don't know their biology, spend, and this is, there's studies on this, they spend their life trying to figure out who the heck are they? Who do they look like? Who do they sound like? Where do these quirky mannerisms come from that their adoptive family doesn't have? Research has shown that when they know their genetics and their biology, they end up being healthier people. Adoptees have higher rates of suicide than non-adoptees. And I think we'll start to see those numbers change as we shift to more openness and more transparency. So on the piece about you know, having a child after placement, there was a point about three years ago where I thought I wanted to potentially have a child. I did get off birth control. And I, as soon as I was off, had... I wouldn't say a, a crazy panic attack, but I had a pretty large emotional reaction. And I realized in my head that I did not want that. Not emotionally. I didn't want that from my son for him to say, why was this child better than me? Or why was this? Not that that would be any more true, but that's how he could feel. And I didn't want the child, the baby that I kept to also have weird feelings and feel like I resented and all these things. So the decision that I've made in my life is that I don't, I don't want to have more children. I know many birth mothers who have gone on to have more children and they're healthy, happy. But for my personal self, I don't want to have more children. I have a boyfriend who has kids and that's super fulfilling to me, but I will not, as of now, I do not see myself ever conceiving and carrying a child again, which I'm okay with. 
Thanks for sharing that. When you said you sort of had a panic attack is our body holds the memories. It knows. You talked about the severe emotional trauma that follows adoption and the struggles with addiction that it can bring. When I was in dark places, I used alcohol and drugs to kind of numb myself because for the longest time, for the first probably four or five years of my son's life, I didn't feel comfortable or safe talking about him. And when I was drunk, I felt you're more loose lipped. I felt like I could talk about him and I would talk about him with strangers for hours. And, and that was my time where I could get out what I needed to get out. I used drinking to numb my pain and to numb my trauma. And I had a couple of really scary moments that those were my rock bottoms and my wake up calls that do, is this the life I want to live? Do I want my son to get a call someday that his birth mom is gone, that she made the choices or, you know, whatever that she's gone. So, you know, I did start therapy and I started surrounding myself with better people. And I started throwing myself into my career. Even today, I mean, I'm teetering right now. I mean, I still do drink occasionally, but the last five months, I have been tuning if I do want alcohol in my life. I was able to get the alcohol under control where it didn't turn into what it was before, but I found myself still kind of that binge drinking. When I do drink, even if it's every once in a while, drinking a lot and finding myself getting in my emotions, having reactions that I should be having sober, right? Mm -hmm. So I can process them. Right now I'm adopting a non-drinking lifestyle and I will tell you that I feel, I feel better. I feel clear-minded all the time, which is great. So we'll see how that goes, but the body keeps score, right? That's another good book. The yeah. body keeps score. Well, it feels like you're making this pathway. It's like, as you as re have recognized, sort of like you went through all of this, you did what you could to survive, but now you're recognizing, Hey, there's other people. And this is a thing I see just when you said you couldn't talk about it unless you were drinking and it makes me so sad, but probably there are so many people that don't talk about it. And that, like you say, you mentioned shame. So many of the things that I see in my work, when here you did this amazing thing, but you're not getting, I feel like I want to put up a stage and have all the birth moms come up and get this big award because they did this amazing thing. And then yet they had to kind of hide and it, it yeah. makes me sad. So how do we empower women? How do you empower women? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing that I have found that I can do is just to listen, to be an ear. And we may not understand the magnitude of what it means to somebody when we listen to their feelings. And when you're not listening just to speak or to share your own story, but you're really listening to understand and to empathize. And that's one of the biggest things that I've done is how can I be a better listener to my fellow birth moms and how can I amplify their voices? You know, I have a podcast with an adoptee, an adoptive mom, and I'm the birth mom called the triad podcast. I use that space to bring birth mothers on to amplify their voices because every birth mother, although we have similar emotion and similar emotional experiences, all of our adoptions are very different. I mean, if you put five birth mothers in a room and you put soundproof walls around all of them. And they told you their emotions around adoption. Most likely they'd be exactly the same. Then if you ask them their adoption story, they would be completely different. But the feelings and the things that we say about how we're feeling are all the same. The biggest things that I'm doing is trying to help amplify more birth mother's voices, listening, 
you know, I think if the world just listened a little bit more, we'd be in a lot better place, right? If we just listened to each other, we'd be in a lot better place. I think I say that every day. The fact that you're giving women a platform, a podcast to be able to speak their story is so amazing to me because the whole time you're talking, I keep thinking, I want to hear these stories. Kudos to you for being busy, but yet saying saying yes to a call that you have. To everybody, not just in the adoption community, but if we could all advocate for people a little bit more, if we could listen a little bit more, if we could truly empathize. And, and sympathy and empathy are different. If we could truly empathize with our, our friends and the strangers and you know our family, and honestly, mostly if strangers, yes, but even within our nuclear circle, if we could truly empathize with those people and what they're going through, I think our lives would change. I can tell that the people who are now in my circle are different than they used to be because I've taken just a, a, an approach that this person is going through stuff that I probably will never understand. doesn't matter who they are. We're all going through stuff that maybe people can't understand and, and we don't need them to understand. I think a lot of people, they don't need people to understand what they're going through, but they need you to be able to listen, to be that ear. And I swear my boyfriend would be like, how many times did you say listen? Because he is always talking about listening. <laughs> be That's a big point. We cannot help anybody. We can't help ourselves unless we're listening to other people and listening to our inner selves as well. Yeah. And our job isn't to fix. It's actually to provide that space for the story, which you're doing. Hope somebody here is listening and they're a birth mom and they've never shared their story. What do you want to say to them? I would tell them to call me or to go Hope O. Baker. You can find me on my website, on Instagram, Hope O. Baker. And let's talk. There are so many support groups that I know about now. I found these pockets. I found these organizations and telling your story for the first time doesn't matter if it was a year ago or 50 years ago, it's going to feel like a weight was lifted. You deserve that. The birth mothers out there who haven't shared their story, they deserve that. They deserve somebody to hear their story. Once they tell their story, what will change for them? I can speak on what changed for me and it was the shame and the self-loathing. When you're talking to somebody who's been through what you've been through, anybody will tell you this. When you're telling your story, say a spouse died, and you're telling that story to somebody who's never had a spouse die, they don't get it. They can empathize and they can understand, but they don't get it. When you tell your story to somebody who your spouse has died, their spouse has died, there's a bond because they get it, right? They get it. And so I think with birth mothers, and when you tell your story, whether it's the first time or not with another birth mother and they get it. And you're like, wait a second, you have those same feelings. You feel the same way I feel, even though we made these decisions, at least for me, some birth mothers were forced into this decision, but you know, we made these conscious decisions. You get how I feel. You're in pain too. I'm not alone. I mean, that feeling for anybody is just an incredible feeling to have this weight lifted and say, I'm not alone. And I think it helps you move past. You stop living in that fog and you can start living your life. You can start living the life that you, you are supposed to live. You deserve happiness. And I think sharing your story and talking to like-minded people who have gone through that experience helps show that, right? It's hard. It's hard to get to the other side, but it's there. I'm a big advocate for people saying yes when it's hard. And throughout this whole interview, I have heard you say yes to really hard things. Thank you for saying yes and writing a book and for sharing 
your story. Most people, I think, feel like if they get up and share their story, people won't understand. But what they may not know is there is somebody, right? Our story matters. If I could take anything away from this, besides all the wonderful resources we're going to put in the show notes and your podcast, which I'll be listening to, to be brave and share your story, hard as it may be, that I keep seeing and hearing you say there is light. Yeah. If sharing your story could be just to one person, right? I think some people are like, oh my gosh, you want me to share my story? And I'm like, hold on. You could just share your story to me or to the person at the coffee shop or to your mom or your brother. That's, it doesn't matter how many people share your story to you. You're right. It's brave. Even if it's just to one person and that's it. I mean, that's brave. It's brave to speak your truth. And you know, if you're a birth mom, please reach out to me. I'm happy to talk or, you know, send you some resources. I and mean, if you're not just make sure that whether it's adoption or not, we're looking at all sides and listening to all sides in, in every issue because they all, they're all experiencing this together. And, you know, we should all have a platform and a voice and thank you for having me on. Thank you. So the name of your book is? Finding Hope, A Birth Mother's Journey into the Light. Your website? Hopeobaker.com. Insta? Hope O Baker. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you can find me is Hope O Baker. If you search on Google Hope O Baker, you'll find all the things. <laughs> awesome. If hope has inspired you and you know somebody that is a birth mom or somebody involved with adoption that you think would benefit, reach out and share because it feels like her campaign is let's let's get the word out, let's be supportive and not let people fall through the cracks. And the thought of that you didn't get support right after that that wasn't available and then you had to kind of journey through some really awful stuff to get where you are today. Thank you for being willing to share it and thank you for the work that you're doing. And I'm just so glad to have you on the show. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference. Oh,